In the previous chapters of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist, we defined just what well-being is, when it came to light, and why the concept needs to be addressed at institutional and system-wide levels. We also explored managing the cognitive workload during residency, the stress of working during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the unexpected toll that burnout can leave behind. And now, for the final episode of the series, Various experts share their thoughts on how to best recognize and manage burnout, as well as how to strive for an optimal work-life balance. These aren't instant fixes, but rather takeaways for anyone, regardless of whether they are struggling or not. There has been no shortage of thought-provoking quotes throughout this investigative series, but the one that is most resonated with me is one that I hope you also hold on to. When I think about wellness, The first thing that comes to mind is the old cliche of being on the airplane and being told, put on your own oxygen mask before you help those around you. So certainly, in the long run, one cannot be an effective doctor caring for one's patients if one does also not care for oneself. However, it's equally as important that physicians work in environments that support their ability to do that. Translation, management can't simply prescribe yoga when the reason for burnout is staffing shortages. So since we know that many of you are frankly burned out from talking about burnout, please skip your mindfulness seminar and tune in, and maybe even find your happy place in the process. But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover breakthrough technology with Massimo Rainbow Pulse Coeximetry, featuring SPHB non-invasive continuous hemoglobin monitoring, and PVI, a non-invasive dynamic indicator of fluid responsiveness. The Rainbow Pulse Coeximetry platform is designed to help support blood and fluid management initiatives without additional equipment or setup. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. First, we're joined again by Rebecca Margolis from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where she's also the Director of Wellbeing for the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine. Well, I don't want anyone who's listening to this to take away that it is their problem. This is a systems problem that needs systems-wise intervention, and those people that are still left in the healthcare system are incredibly resilient. If you look at it as like, what are the things that are holding up the stool or holding up the person, maybe one arm of that or one leg of that is personal resilience and, and creating boundaries and creating space and doing whatever it is that fills your bucket, right? We all have to do that, whether that's family time or exercise or, or what have you. But all that aside, that's one part. What we really need to be doing is leading up and demanding certain things from our leaders, from our hospital leadership, from our society leadership, um, and from our government leadership that will really change the system and to be supporting these efforts of the National Academy of Medicine um, in collaboration with the American Medical Association that really do have the power to change how medicine is practiced. From a hospital level and a department level, you know, physicians really do know what some of the problems are, these these so-called pebbles in your shoe or sticking points about, you know, 
what in my daily life as a physician is just ridiculous. You know, are there 17 clicks to put in the order I put in 50 times a day? Or uh, is the call room I go back to, the sheets never get overturned, and that makes you feel devalued as a human and the person who's there taking critically ill patients to the operating room at night? So the physicians know what are some of these sticking points that don't make them feel valued, that, that could be changed. But they are not supposed to be the you know, architects of their own environment. Uh, we don't need them to be the carpenters, but they have those thoughts and they know. So we need to create forums for people to express these and create some dedicated resources to fixing these small things that can lead to increased physician satisfaction and also you know, these little daily annoyances do add up to decreasing time for patient care if you're spending time doing all these other things. And, you know, these constant workarounds that we're dealing with need to be addressed by our local leadership um, and, and empower and give a forum for anesthesiologists to bring those things forward in a meaningful way. One thing I'm uh, piloting at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and uh, Dr. Amy Vincent in Boston and I are going to pilot is something we are calling the Pebbles Project which is uh, creating a forum, like speaking of, uh, of physicians to bring these annoyances and problems forward. And the idea is to create a psychologically safe space where there is you know, not your direct leadership in this meeting and say, okay, so like, what could we do to make your life easier? Do you need a computer? Do you need, what is it that you need? And some of these things are gonna be looking at different areas of work-life fairness, for example. I'm not gonna tell my, division chiefs that I think the relief order in the operating room is unfair, but maybe I could bring that to this meeting. And then these problems could be escalated by the, you know, for example, in this, in this example, it's going to be by myself and Dr. Vinson to our leadership. And, you know, for this project, we really, we had to go to our division chiefs and chairs and say, hey, we want to do this because obviously there's going to be things that come to us that are far above our ability to handle. And, you know, I want to fix the pebbles and I can take care of making the work environment a place that people thrive. But issues of psychological safety, leadership, inequity need a forum to be escalated. So that is what we are going to pilot at Boston Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital Los Angeles to see if we can really move the needle on physician well-being. Elaborating on the notion of admin culpability is Anushka Alfonso from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I think from an organizational intervention point of view, what is your organization doing? What is your department doing for the people on the front line? Um, is there flexibility in terms of scheduling? Are there resources so they can go to work? Are there caregiver resources? Uh, is there a structure in place for um, improving peer resilience? physical wellness. Most of all, is there communication between leadership, uh, administration, and, and clinicians without the fear of retribution? So there has to be targeted solutions from you know, the organization level. You can't pre prescribe yoga when the reason for burnout is uh, staffing shortages. You have to find innovative ways to you know, staff the ORs. You have to find innovative ways to look at your scheduling so no one is getting burnt out and you're having more people show up to work than, than not. It's only going to get worse unless we figure out 
what we can do. We've had that supply chain issues, shortages of drugs and uh, tubing. We've had COVID affecting people coming to work or people having to take care of others so they can't come to work. We've had people being burnt out, not being able to show up. And this puts a lot of pressure on the people who are at work. And I I think, you know, what is certain is the future is unknown. We don't know if we're going to have another COVID uh, surge like we did. I mean, we, this is, COVID is here to stay, but we as a specialty really have to prioritize well-being initiatives. We really have to promote engagement in our staff to avoid the staffing issues that, are, that that's currently plaguing us right now. But the onus cannot be shifted solely on that individual. There has to be support from the department and the hospital. Um, you know, we always talk about burnout. We always use the canary in the coal mine analogy. And physicians are the proverbial canary in the coal mine. You know, in the 1900s, miners started carrying canaries into the mines with them. So the canaries became a metaphor for warning signs. When the canary kneels over, it was time to evacuate the mine before the miners became the next victim, uh, mostly due to the lung physiology of the canaries. So while the canary may be sick, it is the mine that is toxic. Caring for the sick canary is compassionate, but likely futile unless there is fresh air in the mine. And this is a quote from Thomas Schwank. So how much longer can we handle this? There really has to be a fundamental shift in our work environment and building a culture to help our healthcare staff thrive um, instead of burning out. As a former AMA president said, the most important patient we really have to take care of is the one in the mirror. Next, we are joined by a duo from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City who take institutional responsibility seriously. They discuss some steps the hospital has taken to improve the well-being of its staff, as well as the decision to open a physician's wellness center, which is currently being constructed. So my name is Salvas Mintoudis, uh, and I'm an um, anesthesiologist at the Hospital for Special Surgery. Uh, I'm also the director of critical care services. In addition to that, I'm a researcher, and I have appointments at Cornell, at the Department of Anesthesiology, and uh, at the, pub, uh, the Department of Public Health. I would say that many physicians before COVID, you know, were feeling the stresses, specifically like you know physical stresses. Um, I just recently reviewed an article looking at, you know, the um, plans of retirement for anesthesiologists, right? You know, when do they retire? What are the reasons for it? And physical uh, disability is really one of the main reasons why people choose to retire. And I think, you know, anesthesiology specifically is a very physically demanding job. It's like I always say, like, you know, we are the one people, uh, we can't work from home. We can't really work in an office. We have to show up. It's like, you know, we show up at our construction site every day. And um, I've seen many of my colleagues over the years requiring, you know, orthopedic surgery just because of uh, the demands of the job. And, uh, you know, so the physical uh, component in terms of wellness is definitely one that is important. But, you know, COVID definitely has kind of pushed us over the edge to accelerate uh, even thinking about, uh, you know, the emotional aspects. And I think physicians now are much more willing to talk about it, primarily because I think we've been pushed to the edge of what we can handle ourselves. You know, traditionally, we were the caregivers. We're not really the people who are being taken care of. Previous generations, including mine, 
weren't really you know, open to this admitting that we might need help, we might have problems. And I hope that the newer generation is a little bit more open to that idea. So yes, while physical um, wellness is one thing that is comes immediately to mind and everybody agrees on, I think it's really the, 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 the mental health uh, aspect that uh, has resonated. People openly talking about it, coming from the top and supporting that concept is, is really something that kind of triggered even amongst physicians. Oh, it's okay to talk about this. And it's not only okay to talk about it, but to participate in the development of these programs. And we've really made a big change at our hospital over the last couple of years. And it's frequently mentioned and concrete things are mentioned of what you can do and should be doing. And, um, you know, it's, um, it, it's no longer, you know, a private thing that you deal with. People are openly talking about it. And certainly I've taken advantage of it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see where all this is going. We certainly, when I say looking forward to see where it's going, it's not that we're not involved in it. You know, we have a council and physicians are very much represented and our voices are very much heard because, you know, I think administrators have also realized that they cannot know what's going on in our daily lives, our, our physical demands. You know, it's something that you have to live through and we are being included in these decisions. And it's, it's you know, from very simple comments that we, we, we make to clarify issues and what we need to more complex, uh, you know, strategic planning. So my name is Steve Forty. I'm the Chief Wellness and Resiliency Officer at HSS. I was a critical care nurse for a while back between 2002 and 2008. And that was bookended by a career in the military uh, with special operations where I uh, received the rank of uh, Master Sergeant. I think it's important that we define what a wellness center is for this discussion. And if we look at it in terms of, you know, when you first envision it, you think what? Equinox, right? You think of a gym, a physical space where people can go and blow yeah. off steam. Um, but we know that wellness and resilience is more than that. We know that there's a, a shift in thought and it's not just physical fitness that we're looking at, but it's things like cognitive fitness, mental preparation, sleep hygiene, right? Even educational uh, opportunities, and even to the extent of decreasing barriers to access to things like routine healthcare that people in healthcare don't necessarily get to take advantage of as much as they partake in providing it. So when we look at it from that optic, you know, what does a wellness center look like? Well, it's a place for education and support of self-management right, of down-regulation from stress in the world. So when you brought up the thing about the tennis courts, we could think to ourselves and say like, well, you know, what an amazing use of space and what a great time it must have been to have, have that. But as we think about it, you know, it actually wasn't the worst idea when you have somebody that's able to engage in something distracting and something they love, has a physical component to it, may be rigorous, may not, but it kind of, you know, hits a bunch of those key things that we look for when we look at supporting our surgeons and our uh, physicians. The load, the stress load that is placed on people like Dr. Mepsoudis and, and others is extraordinary and it's increasing. And when someone leaves, it's not only the loss of that intelligence and experience, but it's a shifting of that workload and possibly an increased difficulty of workload to those personnel that remain or are just starting. So I think we can anticipate there's gonna be this continued cyclical impact, right? So there's that piece of it. And then what also happens when they leave is culture, right? The culture is damaged when an icon leaves. So 
when we consider a, a wellness space, all right, it really is a cultural focal point for the institution. From the institution's position, it says, we care enough about you to do this, to make sure you're well and happy here and at home. And for the individual, it's that we care about, we are cared for and cared about more than just an employee, more than just someone that executes on something. It's a positive thing for a culture. Now, when we look at the output, well, physical fitness spaces are important and great because it builds culture and sets habits and physical fitness, moderate physical fitness is important to wellness. And we know that. So there needs to be space allocated for that. But bigger than that is the accessibility of these things. And there needs to be programs that are in place that allow accessibility throughout the organization across all professions, clinical and not. And then it has to hit on topics like that cognitive fitness piece, that mindset training, okay? Because it's what's left. The physical beating somebody like Savras takes by wearing lead, right, in the OR, which is essentially body armor, is extraordinary, right? The disc compression we saw in pilots and special operations with cervical neck injuries from night vision. So the commonalities that I've seen in that world versus this world are extraordinary. So we need those physical pieces to help firm up the structure. But bigger than that, we need to make sure that we have a culture of well-being, a, co a culture that creates uh, an environment where people can approach things like Stavros said about being open and talking about mental health and wellness and stress mitigation, and then have a place to go to learn those crafts. You know, HSS has invested in a cognitive fitness program, and we have 16 classes going on right now as we speak, not as we speak, but in this month where people learn mindset training and breath work and meditation. And these are important components. So I think in the future, those pieces of it in a wellness center as an educational and training center will be more emblematic than it as a place to work out and blow off steam. Dr. Memsoudis was the second physician I met at HSS next to the surgeon in chief. And I met him um, early on, first few days of April, I believe. And he was uh, back and forth between New York press and he was working and exhausted and bringing back information. And when he wasn't saving lives, he was actually briefing back on what we could expect as an institution and how we were gonna cope with things. It was actually an extraordinary thing to watch. But when I got there, it was my second or third day and I was like, I pulled him off to the side and I was like, is there, what do you need from me? Like, I, I've got the bandwidth, what do you need? Right, I was literally like filet mignon, like, what do you need? And he looked at me, he's like, if you have some socks, he's like, I really need socks. And it pointed, to the operational tempo that he and others were at and how, how low, and I've experienced this myself to some degree, the bar for comfort had been lowered where like socks, you know, becomes like the equivalent of a vacation, right? Like it was really an extraordinary thing. And uh, I was proud of it and proud to see his approach to it and the way he was handling everything. I've never told him that, but I really was. And I was struck by how he and the uh, other physicians at HSS stepped up and, and handled incredibly complex, stressful environments, and then would transition from these administrative education roles to clinical roles, and then back to business as we titrated back towards some sense of normalcy. It was something to watch over the arc of two years and continues to be. Breakthrough Technology, Breakthrough Outcomes, a key study conducted at CHU Limoges Hospital in France demonstrated the value of implementing a hospital-wide goal-directed therapy protocol 
for blood and fluid management using the Massimo Rainbow post-coaxymetry platform, showing a 33% reduction in 30-day post-surgical mortality. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. Admir Hezek, the founder and director of NYSORA, the New York Society for Regional Anesthesia, also weighs in on the physical toll the work can take and stresses the importance of staying in shape. You know, anesthesiology is actually, you know, there's a lot of physical activity. As an anesthesiologist, you run from room to room. There's an increase in time pressure, turnover. There's always emergencies. You really have to be in a in a good shape to be able to, you know, um, uh, attend all the activities or actions that we perform on a daily basis. Uh, patient positioning often involves positioning patients in prone or other positions that require physical strength. And uh, performing an endotracheal intubation, you also right. have to possess a certain uh, strength in order to be able to perform the procedure precisely. Even though intubation is not about strength, uh, it's more about technique, uh, you still actually have to have adequate strength in your arms, shoulders, and such in order to perform these procedures. So I believe that anesthesiologists really to be in top shape for clinical practice uh, of today's anesthesiology, they really need to be uh, almost like athletes. They need to be in good shape uh, physically. What happens, James, is, is uh, anybody after age 30 basically starts losing a muscle mass. This is in right. science or medicine, it's called sarcopenia. And the older you get, the more of a muscle mass you, uh, you lose, which is replaced clearly by adipose tissue or fat. And it's not uncommon that you see, uh, you know, your colleagues or, you know, people in 50s and 60s that really walk in a crooked way because they have lost some of that muscle chain that is necessary to keep the body in the proper position. Uh, if you if you perform in, let's say, an endotracheal intubation, you actually have to have a stable and steady and strong core and shoulders in order to be stable, precise, and safe. So you do not uh, cause you know, soft tissue damage or, or teeth uh, mm -hmm. damage and things like this. So positioning the patient, just like I talked about, many of these different positions during, before, or after, you know, surgery also requires you know, a great deal of strength. And then as practitioners age, um, you know, maintaining the muscle tone and, and muscle mass becomes really very important aspect of physician wellness and being yeah. able to practice your craft into the 50s and into the 60s. Hi, this is Dr. Cliff Gewertz. I am the medical director over at Somnia in charge of office-based anesthesia and pain management. First thing I would say is you cannot allow yourself to be a commodity. Uh, what happens in many uh, inst in institutions as well as even in locums uh, is a race to the bottom. Who can do the most work for the least amount of money? The reality is you need to start thinking of yourself as a bespoke tailor. Uh, you know, you do a great job for your patients. They may be asleep and not appreciate it, 
But when they don't have any nausea and they don't have any pain and they walk out of there uh, feeling great, you've done a really good job. And that's the way you need to start thinking about it. Uh, not as a commodity, not as, oh, I can do this cheaper. I can do this uh, faster than anybody else, but rather I, I'm doing a great job for my patients. My blocks work. Uh, patient satisfaction is very high. And that's what you need to portray to your people who are hiring you and working with you. However, it's hard to be perfect all the time. And you have to learn to forgive yourself if you make a mistake. If you're having personal life difficulties, it's extraordinarily tough to separate divorce or separation or uh, problems with your kids from your professional life. And uh, I personally recommend if you're having emotional distress, don't go to work. We tell people, uh, you know, stay home if you've got COVID. It's the same thing. If you're going through a, a tough patch, going to work is not the best uh, therapy. Uh, taking some time off, taking, uh, you know, seeing professional therapists is the right approach. In the cases that I've had to deal with, uh, the actual the drug of choice was propofol. And unfortunately, we found a couple of people dead with a needle in their arm. One of the key points is uh, physicians are not uh, any different than in the rest of the population. Uh, there's a certain percentage that succumb to alcoholism and drug abuse. We are just human beings. As smart as we are, we can still give in to temptations. There are a lot of people who self-medicate, who think, uh, I can't sleep, I'm too stressed, I'll just take a little fentanyl. Uh, right. that's really a, a dangerous approach. Uh, if you're having trouble in your personal life, you need to find real therapy. Uh, if you get into the habit of using drugs, you need to go to the state. Each state has a physician on committee health, uh, protect your license, be a rational person. Uh, and the concept to remember is denial in a river in Egypt. If you're right. not realizing that you have a problem uh, maybe there's an intervention that needs to be planned, but, you know, you need to get help. And now we hear again from Gina Sinsky, an associate professor and associate chair of well-being for the Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Care at the University of California in San Francisco. The ASA Wellbeing webpage, as I said earlier, has a lot of great resources for people. But I think, you know, the, the two things that I really think help are um, having a support system. You know, I actually, uh, when I speak with our trainees, I tell them to, to really have a list of people that they would call um, on a difficult day and to, to tell those people ahead of time that, you know, they're, they're your support system. And so when, you know, these when you have a bad day, you're able to reach out and really have those people um, there to support you. Because I think that's what kind of drives us forward is, is the people we love and care about. And I think the other thing is, is really to try to be kind. I know this sounds really cheesy, um, but I think, you know, it's, it's really important to be kind to not just others, but also yourself. Um, Self-compassion is a really important tool in mitigating burnout. And, you know, for example, when, you know, we have these kind of um, our, our own inner monologue that can be sometimes unkind, I think it's really important to, to think about, you know, 
what would I say to my to my best friend when they were going through this type of thing? And really to have some self-compassion um, and also compassion for others around you. You never know what kind of struggles people are having. And these days it's really, um, you know, the whole world is short staffed and be kind to those who, who showed up to take care of the patients and, and really try to take care of ourselves and each other. My name is TJ again. I'm currently the division head of uh, anesthesiology, critical care and pain medicine at MD Anderson uh, in Houston, Texas. I'm delighted to uh, join you today. Everyone cope uh, differently in our profession, you know, in our mm -hmm. professional lives, in our private lives. Uh, I think the key thing is that we have to um, number one, provide an environment which support uh, physician wellness, uh, which support those of the anyone who may need to seek extra help or maybe um, be able to um, you know seek extra skills to help them to cope with day-to-day -day stresses, uh, both you know at work as well as their personal uh, lives. And, and so having a program which um, be able to help everyone in the department, in the division, I think is critical. But beyond that, I think it's also important to address individuals who, know, who may uh, from time to time have extra challenges, both in their work environment as well as their personal lives, uh, and, and therefore address them specifically uh, to help them to overcome some of these stresses. Now, with regards to the um, programs, you know, certainly over the years, I have um, uh, making sure that we built uh, some programs that are accessible to everyone in the departments in the division. For example, uh, in my uh, previous department at Stony Brook, you know, we have established uh, a committee to focus on physician wellness, uh, CRNA, as well as residents and support staff. So we organize regular uh, events. For example, you know, we have a, a regular yoga sessions for uh, access to everyone in the departments. Uh, mm -hmm. We, uh, as well as the institution, have uh, uh, places where one can go and uh, have some quiet time, do meditations. Uh, there are classes that one can attend. I think these are important programs that encourage uh, both, uh, you know, faculty and staff to take advantage of. Secondly, uh, we also regularly, you know, have sessions where we advise faculty and staff how to, uh, you know, manage their day-to-day -day stresses. For example, you know, we have um, invited grand round speakers on how to, uh, you know, make a balanced life. And also, I think it's important that especially, you know, in our professions where everyone you know, is very busy um, with clinical work as well as other missions, education and research, it is important to uh, help the faculty understand the greater mission of their purpose in life, right? It's not just the hours they work, but also understanding the meaningful of their work. Because I think sometimes when you understand uh, that the meaning of the work it is uh, makes you that the hours you put in is not 
viewed as a um, you know a drudgery, and and you are there mm-hmm. to uh, you know help patients. And I think that is a level that is beyond just the number of hours that uh, we work. And last, but certainly not least, is Myron Yester, a recently retired professor of anesthesiology at the University of Colorado in Denver. So I think there, I think there are lots of solutions. And the, the solutions may require a rethink of how we work. Like one of the things that really bothers, uh, I think, anesthesiologists is the lack of control over their schedule. You know, a surgeon adds something on the hospital, you know, let's say you were planning to leave at five or six o'clock at a long work day, and a surgeon adds on another case. And basically, as the anesthesiologist, you're you're fucked. You know, you, you get no support by saying, hey, look, is this really an emergency? Can't this just be done tomorrow? And how we schedule people to work is something that has to be rethought in its entirety. So for example, medicine has already become shift work where you have people coming in at different hours. Maybe that's what we need to start to do in anesthesia as well. That some people start at seven and some people start at 10 and some people start at one or two o'clock in the afternoon so that the the workday becomes more predictable. I think Mm -hmm. that that's an area of great frustration among anesthesiologists. The second is because of COVID and everything that's happened, we have to recognize that for some people, and I don't know what the numbers are, but it may be a significant segment of our workforce. It may be that what was once considered a full-time job mm-hmm. may need to be rethought where people get more time off, where a five-day week may become a four-day week, or you may have to hire two people to do 130% instead of one person doing 110. I mean, there are a lot of creative solutions to how we could work and change our workflow. But the idea that we're just gonna suck it up is no longer an option that um, um, is, is tenable. Thank you for listening to another season of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist. We sincerely hope that you were able to take something away from this series because physician well-being is of paramount importance. Researchers recently found that 62.8% of physicians had at least one manifestation of burnout in 2021. And while the pandemic's peak is over, supply chain issues and staffing shortages still continue. As we know, Substance abuse disorder does affect anesthesiologists. This might be due to the ease of access to intravenous opioids, propofol, and other anesthetic drugs. More sobering is the fact that every year in the US, roughly 300 to 400 physicians die by suicide. The ASA has a comprehensive webpage highlighting various help resources, including suicide and physician support lines, well-being apps, a burnout calculator, and guides for doctors facing adverse outcomes and malpractice litigation. However, the most important thing to know is that you are not alone. Despite what you may think, many of your colleagues have gone through or are even currently experiencing many of the same feelings of burnout. So create a buddy system and know that there's nothing wrong with confiding in a peer, friend, 
or even a trained professional. While your focus is predominantly and perpetually on taking care of patients, it's okay to think about yourself for a change. Because as one AMA president once said, the most important patient we really have to take care of is the one in the mirror.